We all want life to be the best it can. We all have dreams, but it's easy to be discouraged and frustrated when something doesn't work out. That's when you need to keep on pushing. Well, no one knows more about pushing through than Devin Harris. Devin is a three-time Olympian and captain of the Jamaican bobsled team. If that isn't an obstacle, nothing is. Devin will show you how to pursue your big dreams, bounce back from setbacks, and keep on pushing. You'll be challenged and inspired to live your best life. Welcome to Keep On Pushing Radio. Here's your host, hey guys, Devin welcome Harris. Welcome to Keep On Pushing Radio. I am your host, Devin Harris. Yeah, you know what we do. We share ideas and insights that are going to challenge you and inspire you to keep on pushing and live your best life. So if that's something you're interested in, because we want that for you and of you and for you. So if you're interested, I have to tell you the good news, man. You're in the right place. So again, welcome to Keep On Pushing Radio. My guest today is an entrepreneur. He has businesses in diverse fields, martial arts, marketing, publishing, and the law. He is an author of nine books, and he has helped transform professionals, business owners, athletes, martial artists, and ordinary people with his presentations, group trainings, and coaching. For over 30 years now, he has helped thousands of people to become more centered, happier, and more successful. He is regarded as one of the leading martial arts instructors in North America, but his influence radiates far beyond the dojo. He has definitely made it his life's mission to learn the fundamental principles of success in many different fields, apply them, and then share them with people. And it is for this and other reasons that I am so excited to welcome my newfound friend, Nicholas Sweeno, to the show. Nick, welcome to Keep On Pushing. Kevin, it's so great to be here. You know, we were talking before the episode about fixing leaks, right, at home and in business. And uh, I know some days that's all that's all you can do. But today, um, I'm looking forward to chatting with you, rocking it out, and hopefully sharing some ideas that will help folks as they watch and listen. Yes, man. That, that, so I'm, I'm excited, and thanks for coming. Uh, you know, we are going to plug all the leaks and help people to do the same in their lives as well. That's a goal. Um, so I think, are you a sixth or seventh Dan? Uh, um, help me to understand your ranking in martial arts. Well, um, as you know, I've been at this a long time. And uh, uh, sometimes organizations are foolish enough to give me a promotion or a certificate. Uh, when you're around long enough, you, as, as a friend of mine said recently, you know, you may not be the best, but you're the ones left. And um, so in Eido, which is this esoteric sword art I do, I have an eighth don. That's my mm -hmm. highest rank. Um, but I have a sixth degree black belt in judo um, and Japanese jujitsu and a third degree black belt in, in karate as well as a few other miscellaneous things. Right, right, right. Well, you know what? You're either a badass or you're just uh, around for a long time. But I'm <laughs> kind of curious, man, uh, about the journey. You, you know, I like to really look on the journey. Take us back to... Uh, young Nick and, and his first day in the dojo. Yep, yep. My first day in the dojo in 1968, Ann Arbor YMCA. Um, and I like to say I got there on that day because I was a little kid with a big mouth. As we were chatting before the show, um, 
my folks saw fit to, 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 to move us. So we were upper middle class white liberals, academics. My dad was a university professor. Um, and he saw fit to move us into a, a very uh, racially and economically diverse neighborhood. And so as kids, we all formed in some real education, huh? <laughs> yeah, real on the streets education, you know. So being a little kid with a big mouth, you know, one day I would be grouped with with one one group of kids and we would be fighting the other ones across the street. And then the next day, for whatever reason, I'd find myself in another group. And um, so, you know, it was sort of fight your way to and from school, uh, uh, which which was not a lot of fun, um, I have to tell you. But one day my folks just, you know, came in and said, listen, um, we better do something for you or you're not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> so they took me down to the local YMCA and enrolled me in a judo class. And I got to tell you, on day one, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, uh, so you fell in love, uh, developed this passion. Uh, but I, I have to believe, because that's just how life is, that, that he had some really rough days. Uh, can you remember and can you take us back to perhaps the first time you had a really rough day and you probably wondered to yourself, what did I get myself into? Well, uh, many rough days, uh, uh, most of them because I was small. And, you know, when you're in a competition, in a tournament, they group, group you by, by weight. And so that's, that's something you can handle. But in the dojo, if there's 20 kids in there that day, you got you to gotta play with everybody, right? And so it was not uncommon for me to get paired with people that are bigger. So a daily struggle of being really frustrated, feeling like I had good technique, but not necessarily able to, able to throw kids that are bigger than me. But that's the kind of trouble you can deal with. The other kind of trouble was, uh, because I was a sensitive kid, I developed a friendship with a, with a guy a uh, super nice guy, real charismatic kid, you know, a couple years older than me. And I really started to look up to him. Um, and, you know, after judo class, we'd sneak out into the alley and smoke a cigarette or something. You know, remember, we're, we're eight years old. Um, so uh, we really bonded well together. Um, but, uh, you know, one day he and I were, you know, playing some judo on the, on the floor and I was probably running my mouth unconsciously, you know, not just not thinking about it, but just babbling right. along. And I said something that pissed him off. And, um, you know, he, smashed me in the face and threw me on the floor and um yeah it hurt physically yeah uh but i gotta tell you what what really hurt was the emotion as a guy that i really looked up to just got upset with me and i had no idea i'm sure i was saying something stupid mm -hmm. but i had no idea about it i was just unconscious in the moment um and that's probably the biggest challenge for me in my early days was just having my heart broken uh by somebody i looked up to so much were you guys able to you know make it up we were indeed, we ended up, we, we didn't go to the same schools, but we ended up at the same school later in high school. And um, we didn't become great friends, but we at least uh, we became friends again later. Yeah. Yep. Talk to me about your high school uh, years and what aspirations you had back then. Uh, well, um, in high school, I played judo for my first, in those days we had a four year high school. I don't know what it's like now because I'm a thousand years old but uh so we started in ninth grade and I was just a kid and finished in, in 12th um I was doing judo up through the ninth grade but uh I took the following three years off of judo and joined the gymnastics team uh which is a real uh, still an athletic endeavor still competitive yeah. endeavor um a uh I, I met the gymnastics coach and he really encouraged me to join so that was nice to have that mentorship um but b I was starting to get interested in girls and there were a lot of cute girls on the gymnastics team. So it just made perfect sense at the time. I would do it, yeah, go where the girls are. <laughs> right, exactly. 
Uh, that's 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 funny. That's 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 interesting. And so, um, what did when you were in high school? What did you see yourself uh, becoming afterwards? Um, you know, I was a, I was I was pretty good at academics, which was which was nice. The academic part of high school was pretty easy for me. Um, gymnastics, I was I was uh, I worked hard, but I was pretty good at gymnastics. Um, but as far as me looking forward at that point, you know, my dad was a professor. My mother had had several, you know, had a graduate degree and was a fine artist. I assumed without really thinking about it, that I would end up going to college uh, and maybe, and they, you know, going through and getting a PhD and teaching. I just didn't think about it that, that much. Mm-hmm. I just kind of, I just kind of wandered through. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, at least uh, a big part of my days was, was, was uh, consumed with, with, with chasing girls and, um, you know, doing things that teenagers do that you probably shouldn't do a lot of wasted time, but you know, you get it, through, you got to get through that part of your experience. It wasn't the most productive high school career in the world, but I had some nice earmarks. I met, uh, I met a wonderful young lady and we, we, we dated for three years and um, I did very well in gymnastics and a- academics. So despite the fact that I felt kind of disconnected or not very focused, did okay. It wasn't, it didn't hurt me. I don't know if it helped me as much as it could have. Right. So, uh, but you obviously eventually got back to, uh, martial artists martial arts how did that happen T- take us through that journey yep so um uh i took uh i took a year off between high school and college did some interesting stuff traveled around the country worked in lumber camps did some some fun things uh ended up back at the university of michigan since my dad was a professor there it was natural i think for me to to apply and, and get in at university of michigan and right about the same time i enrolled at u of m i went back to i went back to martial arts um first got back into karate um, and that was a, a variety called Shorinru Karate. I know you're familiar with Goju-ryu, mm-hmm. um, both or, origins in Okinawa. Um, uh, dabbled in a little Aikido, a little Kung Fu, got back into Judo kind of in a light way, but really focused on Karate for a few years. Um, and, uh, you know, picked up in one way where I left off, which is to say that um, I just, I just from, from the first moment I, I saw martial arts, and even today, I just love it. I, I don't know why. Um, uh, you know, I could be having a bad day and low energy and just drag my ass to the dojo. But after five minutes of warm ups and I start doing whatever it is, going through kata or sparring or, you know, setting up throws in judo, I just get immersed in it. And, uh, you know, there's some things in life you're born to do. For yeah. me, that was one of them, right? Yeah. 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 So what, what did you do at uh, U, U of M? Uh, I um, took the long route. Uh, it took me five and a half years to get my bachelor's degree in psychology and English lit. And then um, a theme in my life is that somebody more senior to me, an accomplished person, will take an interest in, in what I'm doing. And so toward the end of that career, there was a new guy directing the fine arts program in creative writing. And um, I met him and he said, listen, I want you to apply for this, this master's program in fine arts. So I did that. And because you know, he was the chairman of the program, I got in. Um, that was a two-year program uh, of creative writing, you know, teaching you to write stories and novels and so forth. One of those degrees that is not going to help anybody get a job almost anywhere. <laughs> but I loved it. Um, I, I, I loved it. Um, you know, as I've always written and read books. And so it was really fun to be around a bunch of writers and, you know, learn the craft. So I, I know, um, I'm not sure if this was if the same guy you were the aide for when you had a run-in with Ted Kaczynski. Oh, yeah. Well, so a different guy. So 
Um, the guy I just mentioned to you was Nicholas Delbenko. He was the chairman of the graduate program in English Lit and in, in creative writing at U of M. Um, the guy I worked for starting in undergrad and then through my, through my graduate uh, time at University of Michigan was a guy named James McConnell, um, uh, a pretty well-known psychologist in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. Um, and I was a, a research assistant for him. So that's what I did for... That's what I did for spending money. Right. Was uh, uh, you know go through literary journals, pull out articles that would be in interest of him, do his filing, open his mail, mm. and that's what that's what uh, brought me into contact with Trouble, Ted huh? Kaczynski. Yeah. Right. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. What that that's a harrowing experience, though, Nick. Uh, what do you remember from that? Uh, well, you know, I tell the story fairly often because people are fascinated by it. Um, as I mentioned, part of my job for, for Jim McConnell was to bring in the mail. He, he, lived in a, he lived in a vast home outside of Ann Arbor. It was a 12,000 square foot home about five miles outside of Ann Arbor. And the mailbox was on the road and then you'd go down his driveway, which was you know quarter mile long. I rode my bike out there in those days. So I rode my bicycle out. I grabbed the mail from the mailbox, went into the kitchen where, you know, so this would have been 11 or noon He's just waking up. He was a night owl, so he would just wake up at that time. He's sitting in the kitchen having his coffee. I bring the mail into the kitchen, and I'm in the kitchen uh, on his counter across from him, and I'm opening the mail and sorting it, you know, throwing out the junk mail, keeping the letters that need to be read. And one of the packages is, you know, the size of, I used to say the size of a phone book, but nobody knows what that is anymore. <laughs> um, you know, a, a box, a brown paper box about, you know, foot, foot and a half long, and three, four inches uh, thick. Um, and I set it on the counter and I started cutting the outside edge to open it. And as I got almost all the way through cutting it, I could feel outward, outward pressure. It was a, what they call a reverse mousetrap. It was a, a trigger that, that was pressed down, right? Mm -hmm. And then once you open it, release the, the tape, the trigger would open and that, that, that caused a, an explosion. So seconds later, the room is filled with gunpowder. Neither of us can hear. Um, uh, uh, at, in the moment, it was just confusion and fear. Um, I didn't realize that I had, that had been hurt, but I soon found that out. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I did was uh, he had an alarm pad. He had a very elaborate security system. He had an alarm pad on his wall, so I ran to that, and I summoned the ambulance. And I came back, and he said, are you hurt? And I think my first answer was, uh, no, I'm okay. And I looked down and I had this big stream of blood coming out of my arm, you know, going across the room. And I go, well, wait a minute. I think I, I think I am hurt. Mm -hmm. um, so he ran and got towels. We wrapped my arm. The, 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 the uh, ambulance company called and said, do you really need an ambulance? And we said, yes. Um, we adjourned to the hallway to wait for the ambulance. And, um, you know, just everything happens in a very strange, you know, looking back on it, it feels like slow motion because you're, you're so full of adrenaline. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so I have some advice for the would-be would -be pipe bomb maker. And it's, it's the reason I'm here today. Uh, so people now know Ted Kaczynski as the Unabomber, right? That's eventually what the FBI named him because right. he was doing a lot of academic and university, uh, uh, targeting a lot of academic and university figures. This was early in his career, so 1985. And he was putting pipe bombs inside these packages with these triggers and he was putting um, fishing sinkers in the packages to act as shrapnel, right? 
But at that time, at the end of the pipe bombs, you know, there'd be gunpowder or whatever inside it, and he would just push something into the ends to stop them. And that's what saved my life. The, the sophisticated pipe bomb makers, such as, they, such as they are, would put uh, screw caps on, which would equalize the pressure, and then it would explode in all directions, right? Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. I'm very lucky because that pipe bomb exploded up and down. It blew a, a hole about this big in the counter in front of me and it, similarly in the ceiling above. Right. Um, so most of the force went that way. I had shrapnel wounds and gunpowder you know, on my face and I did lose some big, big chunks of, of, of meat out of my, my left arm. Um, but that's what saved my life was the fact that this was a pretty primitive device. Wow. Wow. That's that. Yeah, that's... Uh... Very fortunate, a scary, scary situation. Um, so I know at some point you, you moved to Japan to study. What, what prompted that move? Uh, well, um, after being involved in martial arts since 1968, always loving it and always kind of looking back to see what the homeland was. Hey, if I'm doing this, how much cooler would it be, you know, to do this in Japan? Mm -hmm. And I had a very, I had a very twisted view of Japan. You know, I thought it was all you know, temples and kimonos and, you know, very stereotypical view of Japan before I went. First time you set foot in Tokyo, you realize, right, it's the most, probably the most technologically advanced city in the world. But there you can still find the temples and the kimonos and all that. But I always wanted to go. So after, after uh, the master's program at U of M in 1988, I had saved a little money. I had some connections over there. Um, so I jumped on a plane. And uh, with a girlfriend at the time from here who was interested in Japanese music. And we went over there, met some folks that we knew, found a place. And, uh, and, and in those days, they, were, they had what's called the English boom. So everybody in the country was studying English conversation in 88. And that, that went on until about 1995. And so they were desperate for native speakers of English. And the fact that I was a native speaker of English with a bachelor's and master's in English didn't hurt, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I got this amazing job. I would go into this headquarters in Tokyo every day, uh, four days a week, and um, and write course materials for them. Uh, cake job, really. And the rest of the time, I practiced martial arts. You know, four, five, six days a week. Sometimes twice a day. Rarely three times a day. I would find a dojo um, in one of the arts that I you know went mm -hmm. to, and I'd I'd practice. So it was paradise for me at the time. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. You know, you're doing the thing you two things you love: reading, writing, and martial arts. Wow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so then you ended up meeting a mentor who kind of, I guess, brought you into the uh, in Aido. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's funny, you know, having done judo and karate and dabbled in a few other things, I had this dream of doing kudo, which is Japanese archery, right? Always. Mm -hmm always dreamed of that. So I thought, you know, first thing I'm going to do when I get to Tokyo is study Kudo. But my karate teacher here kept saying, you know, the sword's fascinating. You ought to at least, you ought to at least give it a try. And he had heard about this guy that was part of our association. The guy's name was Yamaguchi Sensei. Um, and he was just, you know, one of the most famous sword, swordsmen in Japan at the time. And he came as part of a contingent that summer to Las Vegas to teach. So I went out there to a seminar. And when I saw him, it was just, it was just magical. The guy was maybe five foot three, 110 pounds, just this little guy. Um, but his forearms, you know, were this big from using a sword all the time. Mm -hmm. And his calves were the size of watermelons because he never put his heels down. You know, he 
walk on the slide on the balls of his feet for kendo and yaido mm -hmm. and the first time i saw him i'm in a casino in las vegas where our hotel was and i see this guy with a you know drink in his hand walking across the room and i'd never seen anybody move like that before he floated across the room you know mm -hmm. i just knew who he was instantly and he had a charisma that i've never quite been able to explain he had this vibrancy um so anyway i i met him at the seminar and i go i i gotta at least spend some time with him so when i got there i was training with other people and i kept asking can i get an introduction to this guy can i get an introduction to this guy but they were kind of putting me through the test first right, right. Uh, are you sincere for real right right are you for real are you sincere you're hardworking. i'm not going to refer you until i'm until i'm uh, convinced you have good character but finally after begging long enough this guy sato sensei who was in charge of the organization said okay i'll call up my pal and i'll say you know this guy this kid's coming over so they arranged a meeting it was on a thursday gave me the direction to his house and i went over there and um you know he lived in this neighborhood in in tokyo with this nice courtyard and he had a small dojo in his house wooden floor high enough ceiling so he could swing a sword took my first lesson and um that was one of, you know like my first day in judo my first day in iaido was uh uh just mind expanding i just i just felt like i'd been born to do it um i still can't explain that but mm -hmm. the connection with my teacher was amazing he's just one of the kindest most charismatic people i've ever known and he was a systematic teacher would help me because my karate teacher here in, in michigan was very systematic so i could be i could follow that um and it was kind of amazing uh you know he would go on the floor and he would demonstrate a form and then he'd sit on the edge and i would do the form he'd give me a couple corrections and then I'd sit down and he'd do it for him and we'd go back and forth. And that was three hours. So I'm in the room with a guy who is one of the most famous swordsmen, you know, in, in Japan, incredibly charismatic, full attention on my, on me, uh, no, no distractions. It was exhausting and terrifying, but really powerful. I just, you know, I was able to learn, learn quickly. Yeah. Talk to me about his uh, philosophy and what you took from that in terms of, uh, the way he prepared you, uh, the way he taught, the way he prepared you for, um, for tournaments. Uh, well, he was a fanatic as well. He was already when I trained with him in his late 60s. And he would teach usually two or three, three hour lessons a day. And when he wasn't teaching, he was practicing. The guy was a fanatic about it. So he set a great example. Practice, practice, practice. Loved what he did, communicated that love. Um, very specific, but, but kind. I've had many martial arts teachers. I don't remember anybody else who made you feel so good about your mistakes. <laughs> um, you know, okay, that's not right. Let's do it this way. And if I got discouraged or too excited, he'd go, you know, just let's do it again. Let's do it again. And um, because I worshiped him, the tournaments and the gradings were trivial. The only thing I cared about was what he thought, right? So if you go to a tournament, I go, oh, Sensei, I'm really worried about this tournament. He's like, you know, it's not a big deal. Let's just go do this tournament. You know, you'll be fine. And so I, I was fine. <laughs> right? I read where you're, you're saying that you would practice, uh, you know, the movements that you'd perform at the tournament for, you know, hours, a hundred times. Uh, that, that was how he thought you should prepare? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I would have a lot of harebrained ideas. Oh, Sensei, I want to do this, this, and this. And he goes, you know, let's hold off on that do these things. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to my place and every day without fail, unless I had a dislocated shoulder or, you know, a concussion, I would practice in my little space at home. Um, 
two or three hours. So if, if he said there's seven forms you're going to do, you know, and each form takes, you know, between 30 seconds and a minute, right? If, they, if there's seven forms you're going to perform for the judges, you know, do them one at a time and then do them as a set and then do them again. It's I would every day, starting three months before the tournament, once, twice, three times, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. If I got bored, I'd put on some music and do it again. If that got boring, I'd take off the music <laughs> and do it again. You know, just put it, just grind, man. But it was never a grind because I loved it so much. What have you uh, taken away? What lessons, what philosophies have you taken away from that experience and apply it to the rest of your life, your business and so on? Um, having a great mentor really helps. That's one. Uh, two, it, you know, the cliche is if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And I've certainly seen that. And probably you have too. Mm -hmm. When you love what you do, it's a lot easier. There's a lot, a lot of obstacles melt away. Um, but no matter what happens, you got to be prepared for the hard work, right? It's like doing your push-ups in the dojo. Yeah. Uh, first you hate them, then you just do them. And eventually you learn to love them because they're part of the part of the process yeah so so yeah mentors for me mentors love of what you do and 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 incredibly hard work i just i just uh i don't want to i don't want to minimize that but at the same time the hard work isn't awful if you love it if you love what you're doing right i i agree i mean i often say i don't work um but there's a lot of effort and you can't, you can't, you just can't get beyond that. And the, 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 the idea that I don't work really comes from the fact that I truly love what I do. So it doesn't feel like work, but hey, there's tremendous effort to produce the results that, that you're seeking, right? So um, I, I guess you had that experience uh, in your martial arts career. Yeah, I think that's what, ta what taught me to work hard. I was not a natural a uh, hard worker. I, I was a lazy kid, distracted. Um, uh, I think martial arts, I think doing the push-ups taught me how to hard, work hard. <laughs> so, um, so, so Nick, you, you're back in the States. I know you ended up in law school. Yeah, yeah. How, um, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, how does law and martial arts, what, how, how do they correlate? I don't think they correlate. I mean, I'm sure some people can make them correlate. For me, um, I moved to Lansing, Michigan. Um, I, was, I was married to a, a, a wonderful woman who wanted to go to medical school. So she got admitted to medical school in Lansing. We moved to Lansing. I opened a dojo there. Um, she went to medical school and I, I would walk from the, our home to my dojo and back. And every day I'd walk past a, a law school and they had a huge law library and you could see the big windows and the arches and you saw i saw these guys in there these kids that kids for me then um you know studying in the books and i just thought wow that's fascinating i bet i could do that um and i kept thinking about it and thinking about it and then so that school had a program you know the admission exam for the L for the law school is called the lsat and that school had a program they said well we've got a two-year waiting list but if you do well enough on the lsat We'll put you to the front of the line. We'll give you some a scholarship. Right. Ooh, you know, a challenge. I like that. Uh, so I started studying for the LSAT. And the, the funny part for me is my father still lived down here in Ann Arbor. He was still alive then. And one, on Wednesdays, I'd go and I'd drink a beer with him and I'd play cards. And so 
one night I'm, I'm telling him these plans and he goes, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. <laughs> he goes, you can't go to law school. He said, Hey, you'd hate it. And B, you're not smart enough or something, you know, just right. offhand he said, okay, pops, I'll bet you five bucks. I can take this LSAT in July and I'll be in law school by September. <laughs> and you know, so he goes, you're, you're on kid, you smart ass kid, you know, you're, you're on. So that, that made me really want to do it. So I studied my, my ass off, man. I just, um, here's the hard work part again, you know, thinking back on it, I just can't believe, you know, there's a lot of, uh, materials available, but I, I probably studied 10 hours a day for three months. Um, and I went in and I took the LSAT and I did really well on it. And sure enough, the law school, you know, called me up and they said, if you are ready, you know, you can come in in September and we'll give you 50% off your tuition. Okay. Why not? <laughs> so for a $5 bet, plus I won the $5, you don't understand <laughs> the important thing. <laughs> yeah, that, so, you can add that to your tuition. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, and I loved law school because it was a vacation from having to grow up, you know. Um, uh, uh, you know, I ran my dojo, you know, had my, you know, did what I was doing. Um, and, and, you know, went to law school and did, did pretty well. Um, I loved law school and I loved the academic side of law. So after law school, I clerked for the Michigan Court of Appeals. And then I spent some time clerking for one of the Supreme Court justices in Michigan. Um, all the academic part, I just loved, loved, loved. Turns right. out I got into the practice of law, didn't really love it. Mm. <laughs> so I bounced around. I went to a few different law firms, ended up in northern Michigan, living in just a, an ideal, beautiful place. Um, uh, if I had had a wonderful job, I'd still be there today. But um, the folks in my office um, were, not the, were not the nicest people I ever met. I don't know if they were the most honest people I've ever met. And so I had a lot of time to think about, you know, do I really want to do this? And right. the more I thought about did I hate what I was doing because of the people and the work or was I just not right? I didn't love it. That was the difference, right? I didn't yeah. love it. Like I did martial arts or other things. Um, and so I was okay at it. Um, I would have been a lot better had I loved it. And so at some point I just started thinking about getting out. So I started, you know, probably 10 years. I still have a law license. I still dabble in it. I help some people now and then, but really it's, I, I pretty much did 10 years of, of law and then, and then shifted back into martial arts and other things. Mm. So now you're using, you know, your experience um, and, and you spoke, uh, in fact, I'd like to dab, dive into that a little bit more. Um, Yamaguchi Sensei, you, you spoke about how you kind of soaked up his essence and, um, you know, learned so much from, from him. How has that informed, uh, you know, what you're doing now? What are some of the things that you're like, you know what, I, I'm holding on to this that I'm learning from you and I'm applying it to my life now. Uh, the first thing is just the level, you know, what's possible, what's possible in life. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but not so much anymore, but when I was younger, I'd look at really successful people and just feel like they were cut from a different cloth. That That, you know, I was like a lot of folks. I just assumed if someone had a great business that they were born with it or their parents we're in that, um, you know, I would look at a president or a, or a company owner or a celebrity and I just go, you know, they had a different path, something, something enabled them to do it. It never occurred to me that that's something I could 
that I could do, that I deserved it and I was capable of it just as much as anybody else. Being able to get an introduction to somebody who is, you know, probably one of the greatest swords people that ever lived, certainly post-World War II, and then to be able to fulfill a lot of the abilities with him, you know, just to be in the room with somebody who's that good and know that they're human and, and, and to learn what steps they took to get there. That's why I said earlier the importance of a mentor, right? Um, uh, it helped me realize that I could do, I mean, within limits, right? We all have mm-hmm. luck. We all have luck, innate intelligence. Um, but things that don't, the things that don't require luck or, or innate ability are, you know, showing up on time, working hard, uh, reaching out for help, you know, those kinds of things. And that's where really 90% of everything important is, is in the hard work, is, is, is in the grind. Um, but I realized, I learned two things with, uh, during my time with Yamaguchi Sensei. One was that I have a leader's personality. Even if, I, even if I fail, I'm a better leader than a follower. I'm a terrible follower. Mm-hmm. I'm just not good at it. Um, and the other thing I learned was anything's possible for me just, and for you. Yeah. It, it, we just have to set our mind to it. You know, as you described him physically, the, the, the size of the, the muscle in his arm from holding the sword, the size of the calves, his calves, the muscles in his calves, you know, from all the years of, of training, I found it analogous to the size of the muscle, I want to say, in our mind, in our brain, in our heart, in our soul, um, you know, and how st- big and strong those can get from, from years of training, just being consistently doing the hard work. And I think that's the thing that, you know, most of us need to learn. As you say, you know, if it's not luck and it's not innate intelligence and and even with our intelligence, I think we're way smarter than we are willing to give ourselves credit. But just if you, if something that you just need to work on, man, imagine how big and strong those muscles can get just by doing the work. So um, I'm, 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 I'm kind of curious because as you transit, well, you haven't really transitioned, but as you continue to do martial arts, you have found a way to use that to teach um, life lessons and teach people how to become successful. So I'm kind of curious as to how you started to make that connection and uh, embarked on that journey. Yeah, I think two worlds came together. Um, you know, always in the martial arts, there's an idea that you can get better. Often we talk about it as, you know, you can be more physically fit or you can fight better. That, that, but, but those are the lowest common denominator. You do those long enough. And as, as I'm sure you've experienced, uh, you, your confidence improves, your health improves. That muscle you're just talking about um, starts building up. And during some of my, my, my hardest times, which were during my, the end of my law career, I started paying a lot of attention to the big players in the personal development world. People you've heard of, you know, Tony Robbins, Deepak Chopra, you know, Brendan Burchard. I started reading all their stuff. And the more I read them, the more I kept seeing these parallels between the stuff those guys were saying and the stuff that, you know, they may have a, you know, often in my view, they're a little too marketing driven. Um, but, But their stuff is based on solid principles. And I just kept seeing the parallels, uh, you know, you know, believe in yourself, do the work, uh, you know, until you believe in yourself more, and then you'll do a better job. At the, you know, 
this this cycle this cycle of improvement and so the more i followed those guys the more i kept seeing the parallels and the more it worked in my life the more i wanted to share that um a question i often ask experienced martial artists is what's the gift that you got from a lifetime in martial arts that you would want to share with people whether they do martial arts or not and to a person they all say yeah i just want them to have that feeling of unlimited potential that i have that i have the confidence i can do anything if i put my mind to it you know the joy of growing and activity uh so those things started to come together and you know people would come to me as a as a martial arts sensei and they say oh you know i'm struggling with confidence well let's work on that you know um and then i do it for a group of five or a group of ten kind of organically um you know and then i just put my mind to it a few years ago and said well there's no reason why if you can't you know if you can teach 10 people how to be more optimistic how to be more effective how to put together a plan and live into it there's no reason we can't teach 100. Mm -hmm. so that's when i started doing bigger events what do you think uh, because i know you do a, a program called permission what do you think it is that stop people from giving themselves permission to succeed what have you noticed from the people you're coaching and training? Uh, uh, I wonder what I wonder what you've seen as well. But um, it's a number of things, right? Often it's um, the voices of their parents inside their heads. You know, our parents are trying to keep us alive, so they say no a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no is not always helpful, right? And as you get older and you have better ideas, sometimes yes is important. So often it's parents' voices. It's often spouses' voices. Sometimes you know people have fallen down and skinned their knees a few times. And they feel like everything they do is going to lead to that. So experience, um, um, yeah, they don't have permission. They, they, and, and I was working with a lot of people on writing books, on building companies. And I noticed that we'd agree on a plan and they would take a couple steps on the plan and then they'd stop and they wouldn't be able to do the next step until they checked in with me. Hey, is it all right if I do this? They were asking for permission, right? In a lot of places, people were asking for permission. So my first goal in that is to give is to give them a sense of permission. And then the next goal is to teach them or help them figure out how to give themselves permission. Right. Yeah. Often you can't snap your fingers. Right. It may it's a process. It's a process yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what, what are some of the, I, I, I don't know, ideas, strategies that, that you give them that help them? Because obviously you're giving them permission is one thing, but you're going to have to, if you have to give someone permission, Every time they need to do something, they're going to come to you. Right. Uh, right. So, what, what were some of the strategies you use to help them to give themselves permission? We start with baby steps. The the most important, the secret sauce, the the formula for our event. It's a it's a twelve hour lockdown immersive event. You know, hundred people in the room. I say, listen, you got to commit to this. Come in at six in the morning. Leave at six at night. You 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 got to stay for this. The secret sauce is something called unconditional positive regard. When you set foot in there, you have to agree that the only thing you're there for that day, besides yourself, is to listen to others, ask questions, give them support, right? So we teach people to applaud for others, to, to support, but we don't offer advice because advice is all, often criticism, right? In different clothing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't criticize, you don't offer advice. Uh, everybody is sworn to support. If you're telling me something about your dream, I don't care if it's a dream that sounds completely crazy to me. 
during, I mean, if you're a serial killer, that's one thing. We're going to ask you to leave. But, but if your dream is any kind of productive thing at all, if it's nothing, if it's not for me at all, I'm going to smile. I'm going to nod. I'm going to ask you questions about how you're going to do it. Right. I'm not going to offer advice. And when you're on stage talking on the mic, telling everybody about that dream, I'm going to applaud like it's like my life depends on it. Mm -hmm. That alone is so powerful. People leave there just, you know, over the moon. It's powerful reinforcement, which yes. most people don't get. Most people will get the exact opposite, which is a criticism and the, mm -hmm. that can't be done. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Go find something realistic to do. <laughs> right? How often do we hear that? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, yep. And, and so, yeah, um, that's, that, is a, that is powerful, man. And that's the thing. I think your life, your journey um, epitomizes the, the fact that if you believe in yourself, if you work to build those muscles, um, you know, even in an environment where you're not, I want to say not expected to succeed, not expected to compete. Like I'm thinking back to when you're in, in, uh, in Japan competing in those tournaments, you're, you're the only Western, are you still the only Westerner who has won those tournaments? Um, there was up, up until I competed, there was one other Westerner who had done okay in them, uh, didn't go quite as far as I did. I suspect in the time since then, right, mm -hmm. a lot of folks came in after me. I don't know if I opened those doors or if it was just a natural, you know, immigration to Japan, people had heard about it. But at the time, I was often the only, only non-Japanese in a room, you know, 500 people. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you're, you're definitely demonstrating hey, if I believe in myself, if I can do it, then you can do it. You just have to give yourself permission. Uh, Nick, how does someone find you um, for your seminar or for speaking? How do they find you? Uh, probably the simplest way is to go to my uh, permission website. Um, it's uh, nicholas-sweeno.com. The, the Nicholas is spelled like uh, the golfer, Jack Nicholas, N-I-C-K-L-A-U-S. My parents were just so fond of the German spelling, I guess. So Nicholas-Sweeno, S-U-I-N-O.com. Um, they can find a lot of information there. Um, we, you know, we have all the social media as well. So there's permission on Facebook, on LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. Awesome. All right. So Nicholas-Sweeno.com? Um, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's where you find the man who is, um, you know, a badass with a sword but at the same time will help to give you help you to give yourself permission to cut through all of the obstacles that are standing in your way. Nick, this has been amazing, man. Thank you so much for spending time with us, sharing your experiences and your wisdom. Devin, thank you so much. I had a great time. Awesome. Hey, so guys, if you enjoy this, please make sure you leave a comment at, at the bottom. If you haven't done so yet, hey, hit that subscribe button and hit that bell. You'll get a notification every single time we post one of these amazing videos. And don't forget to share it, right? Don't keep it. Your friends want to be inspired as well. So share it. Don't keep it. And I'll always keep it.